You know, that song is the perfect way to kick off this new series called Crave. And it's because that song sets us up because we have cravings in our life that every single one of us, we, we, we can't say no to, we're dying to fulfill, and we struggle to control. And we all have cravings that we can't contain. And it made me think of something that happened just this last Friday night. Um, we had the pep rally for the Disney Marathon. And, and uh, for those of you that don't know, we have a group of people that run marathons and raise money to put clean water wells in, in for a people group called the Pocot in Kenya. And so on Friday night of race weekend, we always do a little pep rally and get everybody together. And it was at, it was at um, Lesherichini Bantam's house, and they had all this great food and stuff. But they had something there that I absolutely love, and that is a dessert called flan. Ever, anybody ever have flan? Like flan? Okay, how many of you love flan? It's your favorite dessert ever. Okay, there's about a few of my people in the room. Um, I love flan. I can't get enough of it. And they had this whole sheet of it there. It was like this much flan, like laid out on a sheet. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to go get a piece of that. So I get a piece of that, and I'm like, oh, that's really good flan. So I'm going to need a couple more pieces of that. And so I just kind of worked my way around and had three or four, maybe more pieces of flan. And so which was great. I'm like in heaven. Well, then at the end of the night, everybody's kind of leaving. And Riccini says, hey, um, why don't you take the flan? And then hands me like a dish to put stuff in, like a little aluminum dish. And so I'm like, <laughs> don't have to tell me twice. So I go over to the flan, and there's like maybe a third of it left. And so I get six pieces, or six of us in our family. I'm like, I can justify six pieces. But then there was a little bit of room left in the tray. And I'm like, well, I don't want that to go unused, right? I mean, it's there. So I, I pick like five or six more pieces, and I just put them on. And I'm just away doing my thing, and I'm talking to people. And all of a sudden, literally, Riccini runs over because I thought she said somebody take the flan. She actually said somebody take some flan, not all of it. She runs over as I'm going for my next piece and grabs a tray. She said, I'm going to take that from you right now and then goes and puts it on another counter. And literally I'm standing there with the spatula going to get another piece. I can't say no to it. Well, here's the funny part. So I take all that home and uh, Melissa on the way home, she says, you are so embarrassing. I'm like, I know, I'm so sorry. Uh, so I get it home. I put it in the fridge. Last night, 10 o'clock, I'm driving home guess what I'm thinking about? The flan in the fridge. And I'm going through it. I'm picturing it. And I'm going, nobody better touch my flan that's in the fridge because everybody's at home. And so I get home. There's three pieces left. And so I have a one and a half of them because I'm going to save the rest for later. Um, but it's one of those deals where it's like we all know what it's like to be driven by our cravings, to be driven by our appetites. We have appetites for food. We have, we have cravings for, for affirmation. Cravings for, for sex, for stuff, the need to be right. Some of us have, a, have, a, have a, a, an appetite to be right all the time. Um, I'm, of course, not one of those. Um, we have addictions to alcohol, to drugs, to smoking. Um, and appetites and cravings, they only know one word. And so let me just ask you, what's the one word that appetites and cravings only know? It's more. Did anybody say more? Okay, anybody say more? Okay, the guys and the people in the back who heard it in the first service. Cheaters. Um, no, it's, it's like the, the only word that cravings and appetites know is more. They are never fully and finally satisfied. You are never going to have your last meal to end all meals. You're never going to have a drink to quench your thirst for more drinks. That's the nature of appetites. That's the nature of cravings. They're never fully and finally satisfied. So as a result, what happens is even though cravings aren't negative by nature, they're, they're not and because they always want more, they really have the potential to control us if we don't control them. And so let me just give you a couple thoughts around this whole series. And that's this. Our cravings will either rule us or we will rule them. Our cravings will either rule us 
uh, or, or we will rule them. And the big idea of this series is this, how we handle our cravings will determine the direction and quality of our life and our legacy. How you handle the cravings in your life and how I handle the cravings in my life is going to determine the direction and the quality of our lives and the legacy that we leave behind. And so let me ask you a question that you don't have to answer because I already know the answer, but that's this. How many of you have ever des desired something that was bad for you? How many of us? It's all of us. All of us. You don't need to answer. I'll, let me answer for you. We all desire things that are bad for us. And what's fascinating about Scripture, and one of the things I love about God's Word, is it is anything if not truthful. You want to know the truth? Go to God's Word because He speaks about our condition, the condition of our hearts, the condition of who we are. And so I want to read you just a, a, a passage of Scripture from the Apostle Paul. He's one of the heroes of the faith. He um, had a, an encounter with Jesus Christ. It radically transformed his life. And he became, he actually wrote most of the New Testament. Just a great theologian. This is what he writes about our cravings and our appetites. Romans 7, verse 15. He says, I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if you know what, if, but if, you, if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good, that God's way is right. So I'm not the one doing wrong, it's sin living in me that does it. He's talking about this battle inside of us. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Are you guys relating to Paul here? But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. And so I've discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart. I desire to do right. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. And I just want to say, every one of us have been right there, haven't we? After not being able to say no to addiction or craving or appetite after appetite after appetite, we get to this place where we're just, we are just a miserable person. So Paul asks the question, well, who will free me? from this life that is dominated by sin and by death. And I love how honest Paul is being. What is he doing? He's just saying, I am just like you. I am writing most of the Bible that's going to be read for thousands of years, which he probably didn't know that at the time. But he's saying, this is the reality of my humanity. And then he answers, he says, thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. He lays out and says, this is my struggle. This is what, I, what happens with my cravings and my appetites. And then he goes, well, who's going to save me? He says, oh, the answer is Jesus Christ, and that's where we're going with this whole series. We're diving into what Paul is talking about. And so next week um, is I just can't say no to the bottle. The week after that is I just can't say no to my body. And then the week after that, we're going to wrap up our series with our appetites for digital devices. So don't miss that one. Um, uh, we're going to drop them off at the door when you walk in. I'm just kidding. We would never do that. Uh, but today we're talking about this idea of not being able to say no to your approval. 
how many of us cannot say no to the approval of other people? And so to, so to get us into the mindset of this series, and this week in particular, um, I, I, want, I want you to hear from an expert that's going to join us for the next four weeks. Um, and he's going to join us via video. His name is Jack Wilson. He's going to be interviewed by um, one of the founders of Kensington named Dave Wilson. They're both very wise people. They're completely bald. And so as you listen to them, you're going to go, wow, those guys really know their stuff because they're bald, right? And I'm just kidding. Um, but there's a few things you need to know about Jack. Um, before he speaks. And uh, just to give you a little bit of pedigree of why he's speaking into this whole series, um, he, was a, he was a vice president at Oakland University, dean of students. He's an adjunct professor at Michigan State uh, Medical School, also Oakland University's School of Health Science. He's a consultant to the United States Army. He has numerous companies that he's a consultant to. He has a private practice in executive coaching and sports psychology. Um, his psychological specialty is performance enhancement and uh, recognition of treatment of stress-related issues. Like the guy is just an expert on so many things. He's a PGA Tour caddy. He is the sports psychologist to the national baton twirling champion of America. Um, there you go. Um, but, but here, most importantly, um, why Jack matters to me is he and his wife, Kathy, have been bonus parents to Melissa and I for 20 years. They stepped into our life 20 years ago, and because of Jack and Kathy Wilson, I believe our life has been radically changed from what it could have been to what it is now, and we are eternally grateful because of his expertise. Like he, I talk to him weekly, bi-weekly. He's the guy that I call and say, man, I don't know what's going on. Can you give me some advice? Help me see this from a different perspective. And so I'm, I'm excited um, to share with you the thoughts of a man that God has used to shape me, and I'm hoping that God will use his words over these four weeks to help shape you as well. So let's listen to Dave Wilson interview Jack Wilson to get us on topic for where we're going today. So, Jack, we're talking about cravings, uh, addictions in this series. How would you define that? I know you deal with this kind of stuff all the time in your own life. Sure. But no, obviously counseling people. How would you describe, define a craving that a person can't say no to? Well, a craving is both psychological and physiological. You know? And when we, uh, when we get, whether it's craving for chocolate or craving for alcohol or craving for a controlled substance, we actually have kind of a physiological change, you know, in, in the whole mind-body system. Uh, and thinking about that, you know, visualizing it, you know, you've heard me say the 24 hours a day, we're constantly talking to ourselves, both in words and in pictures. And when we have cravings, those show up as pictures in our brain. And a picture is worth what? thousand words, right? You know, so when we picture the, you know, the object of our, of our desire or, or at some point perhaps the object of our addiction, uh, then it basically overpowers the whole system uh, and makes us think about it you know, like in a compulsive. You can almost use compulsive and craving sort of as synonyms. Now, how do I know or how does a person know when a craving is good and when it gets dangerous? Uh, whenever uh, a craving interferes with our ability to leave a normal, healthy uh, relationship-centered life, then it's something we really ought to be giving some serious thought to. So let's say week one of this series, I struggle with your approval mm -hmm. and everybody's approval. Right. How can I test that to see if it's really determining how I feel? Okay, if you're struggling with approval, um, then you, you, there's a variety of different things that you wanna do, but you wanna begin having an attitude change, okay? Uh, because approval is an attitude. You know, and attitudes are incredibly powerful. 
Okay? Uh, so if you have an attitude that I need somebody's approval, then start thinking differently, start visualizing differently. Um, but in that process, start kind of analyzing where did this come from? Um, you know, you know, I'm really big on on personality types and things like that. You know, and certain personality types are more likely to care about other people's attitudes. You know, so we want to start there. Uh, some people have been uh, grew up in dysfunctional families, uh, and they were not allowed to be who they really are. So they become very concerned about approval because they were trying to fake it without even knowing they were faking it because that was their environment. Uh, but they've not been allowed to express who they truly are. You know, so you start thinking in, in terms of kind of a, in, the, in the existential sense, who am I? Uh, and if you grew up in a dysfunctional family that did not allow you to develop um, by trying things out, by making mistakes, by talking honestly about your emotions, um, then you're going to have to go through some of that. One of the um, scariest questions that Jack asked me on a regular basis is, where did that come from? And I'm like, I don't know. Well, that one I should have gone right. Is that the right answer? You know, it's just one of those things where he just really is constantly driving you to where does that come from? And so it's like we want to dive into that today is where does this addiction to the approval of others, um, because we all know what it's like to crave that approval, um, to be accepted and, and approved. It makes us make some really bad choices. I don't know if maybe, maybe not for you, but I've made a lot of wrong and bad choices in my life because I was really seeking out the approval of the people that I was hanging out with, um, you know, that I considered important at the time when I was in middle school. I tried smoking and I'm like, I know you're thinking, oh, but you're a pastor. I'm like, well, I always wasn't, you know? Um, and so it's like, I, I, I tried smoking. The only problem with smoking is I had asthma too. And that just didn't go very well together, right? So like two weeks into that, I'm like, that doesn't work, okay? I'm out. Um, well, then that didn't work. So then I went to dipping. I went to because my friends were like into the tobacco products. So I tried dipping. Well, all you need to do is dip one time and then swallow when you're supposed to spit and you're not going to dip anymore, okay? Well, I did that like second or third time in. And so that like that was out. I tried cursing to be cool. Um, I don't know if you did that when, when you were a kid. You know, my mom taught me better, but it's like I was really, really mattered to my friends and that's what they did. I wanted to be a Approved by them. I have, I have lied about my accomplishments, trying to impress people uh, and get the approval of people that I want to fit in with. I have, I have exaggerated how cool I am. And I know some of you are going, you're already so cool. Why would you do that? I know that that's what you're thinking. Uh, well, I don't know why. I just, I did it anyways. Um, uh, you know, it's like I've dropped hints at my actual accomplishments um, so that I could be fit in with other people that are talking about their accomplishments to get their approval of people that were important to me. And uh, I've even got a buddy of mine who literally, when he first got married and he started a new job, he actually asked his wife, which she didn't do it, by the way, but he asked his wife, he said, hey, because he had a lot of accomplishments in his life and he didn't want to bring them up and no one was talking about them, he said he actually asked his wife, he said, hey, when we're meeting new couples and new people, would you just bring up my accomplishments so that we could talk about them? Like he actually asked her to do that so that he could fit in and stuff. Um, we all at some point, maybe even now, have struggled with an unhealthy need for others' approval. And I'll just tell you this, I have um, struggled with an unhealthy addiction to approval for decades of my life. I'm 44 years old. I know, you're thinking, gosh, I had him pegged at 29. I'm 44, um, you know, but it's like for decades of my life. 
It has driven me, this approval of other people. And I think in, in large part, one of the reasons is the absence of a father in my life from a very young age, uh, divorce at a young age. Um, our dads are such a big part of giving us our identity and not having the approval of a father growing up uh, put me on this journey where my whole, whole life was, was wanting to earn approval from the men in my life because I never had had that and wanting to earn approval of the people around me to fill that void in my life. And you know, it's a, and I looked up a, a couple of websites on just this topic of approval of others. And it's very interesting what, what you find. Um, a lot of the sources, they say 100% of people, 100% of people struggle with the uh, approval of others to some degree. But 40 to 60% of people struggle with this to where their desire to have approval is strong enough that it changes their act actions and dictates the choices they make in their life. 40 to 60% of the people in this room, if this study is correct, struggle strong enough by needing other people's approval that it changes their actions and dictates the choices that you make in your life. Now, here's the thing. Everyone needs to feel appreciated on a regular basis. God placed this in us, this need to, to feel loved, accepted, and valued. But when it controls your life, when it controls your decisions, when it controls your feelings of self-worth, that is a different story altogether. And that's what we're talking about. Because for many of us, 40 to 60% of us in this room, that's where we live. Our need for approval controls our life, our decisions, and our feelings of self-worth. So I want to dive into a book. It's called The Search for Significance. It's written by Robert McGee. And he basically says if that's where you're living, 40 to 60% of, of the room, he says there's three patterns that you're going to fall into because you are addicted to the approval of others. And just like any addictions or appetites, it forms a cycle that goes round and round. And you will find yourself on any one of the three parts of this cycle at any point in time if you're one of the 40 to 60%. And he says this, the very first pattern is called the performance trap. It is a pattern of the mind, the way you think. And the performance trap actually has a formula that goes with it. The formula is this, my self-worth equals... My performance plus people's opinion. That's where you get your self-worth. And you can just kind of self-analyze right now. Where do you get your opinion of who you are? Where do you get your self-worth? Is it your performance plus other people's opinion? All our lives, society tells us that performance equals acceptance and approval. Third grade, Miss, Miss Williams, gold star, meant you were a good kid, right? She had a box of gold stars. If you got a gold star for the day, um, you were a good kid. And guess what she did? She put the gold stars up on a chart. And guess what she did with the chart? She kept a tally on the board of how many stars you had for the week, for the month. And then she gave a prize for the ones with the most stars, just saying, hey, if you're a good kid, you're the most approved, and I like you the most, and you stand out from everyone else. It happens when we're young, and then it goes to our grades as we get older, and we're judged by everything. You know, if you get good grades, you get on the team. If, you're, if you make bad grades, you're off the team, and it goes on today as adults. Um, what do we ask people? Second, third question in. So what do you do? Uh, what do we do, and how important are you? How valuable are you? And I'll just tell you, I lived in the performance trap for many years of my, mind, uh, of my life, um, being, a, being a golfer that was almost at the professional level, playing for Oakland University. Um, my, uh, I lived this out. My self-worth was a number on the end of a scorecard. I'll just tell you, that's where I got my self-worth from. And if it was a number that was 75 or above, you couldn't scrape me off the ground. Melissa, we were dating at the time, and she said she would hate it when I would call her after a tournament round because she didn't know what she was going to get. I was either the, the best, most awesomest man ever to have lived and walked the face of the earth, or literally I was like as flat as a pancake on the ground because I had no self-worth. And that's how it came, that's what it came down to. Well, if you have this performance trap mentality, um, it's a mindset that says your self-esteem is tied directly to your performance, and this may be present in your life. You have a constant fear of failure. 
Perfectionism, a drive to succeed at all costs, manipulating others to achieve success, withdrawal from healthy risks, anger, resentment, pride, depression, and low motivation. It is a dangerous place to live when your self-esteem and self-worth is tied to your performance plus other people's opinions. When you, when you go to scripture, there's this passage in 1 Peter where Peter is talking about a lot of issues in our life, but at one point he speaks directly to women about an area that, that, that to this day many women feel immense pressure about and struggle with this, this being the number one area that they're addicted to approval in, and that is your beauty, right? We are addicted to our beauty. Women, you feel so much pressure to look perfect and walk out of the house with everything right and to, and to feed off the approval of men in your life and other women in your life. And uh, while it, this passage is focused on women, it can be expanded to men um, and performance. But this gives us insight into how God sees this area of our life. 1 Peter 3. This is the Peter that um, what, what spent three years with Jesus. This is the Peter that denied Jesus. This is the Peter that was one of the fathers of the church, one of the, one of the founders of the church. He's speaking and he says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. I, is he talking to first century women or 21st century women? Instead, instead, it should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. What is he saying? He's like, look, everybody looks for the outward appearance so that, you, you know, that, that your beauty comes from what you look like and what you wear and how you present yourself. But he's saying, no, that's not it. It should be your inner self. That's what's great, of great value in God's sight. Well, what's scary about this performance pattern is that if you get into it and it goes unchecked, it leads to a second pattern, and that is the approval addiction. And it's a pattern of our actions. It says, I must now constantly receive affirmation from others to continually feel good about myself. And that is when affirmation from people becomes a must. Your self-esteem can only go so long without getting affirmation, which means you'll do anything to get it. And before long, that affirmation begins to define who you are if you have developed this life pattern. This is what you'll find yourself overly sensitive to criticism, being easily manipulated, withdrawing from others to avoid approval, meaning you won't even talk to people that you know disapprove or that might disapprove. You will, you will avoid them so that you don't have to deal with their disapproval. Having a fear of rejection, attempting to please others at any cost with little thought of the long-term impact. And if you're caught in this, the opinion of others means everything to you. And I would just say this, the first 12 years, um, I've been doing this for 22 years, the first 12 years of, of doing what I do, I'm standing up in front of people and talking for a living and leading publicly, I had an addiction to approval. I was stuck in this little pattern because it's like, it's a lot to stand up here and just be vulnerable and share with people your thoughts and your ideas. And there's a desire for people to, to want people to like you and to, and to affirm that. And it's like, man, I would, I would come down off the stage, and, and if, if I didn't hear enough comments and people wouldn't say, you know, man, that changed my life, or all oh, this or all that, that, I felt like a bad leader, I felt like a bad person, I felt like bad at my job, like I shouldn't be doing what I was doing. And it was all based on how other people responded to what I'm doing right now. I needed that affirmation, because I was stuck in this cycle. Well, if the first stage goes unchecked, you get to the second stage, and if you get to the second stage and it goes unchecked, there's a third pattern for our lives, and that's the blame and shame game. 
It's a pattern of consequences, and this is what happens when things don't go my way. The first off thing is we blame ourselves. And I'll just tell you, people that are here playing the blame and shame game are extremely hard on themselves. I mean, if you're the kind of person that just beats yourself up like crazy over any little thing that goes wrong, you might be stuck right in this cycle. But what happens is, is first off, we blame ourselves, and then when we don't succeed, and that continues, we begin to blame other people. See, when most of our self-esteem is tied up in our performance, we don't want to admit when we fail in life, because that means we would have little to no worth, so we blame other people. And if we do come to grips with the, with the, uh, the low, low performance in our life, you know what happens? Shame. We feel ashamed of who we are. We live with shame, a feeling of worthlessness. And for 40 to 60% of us in this room, we are somewhere in that cycle. We're either in the performance trap and our self-worth equals our performance plus other people's opinions, or we're in the approval addiction stage where we will do anything to find that approval, or we're stuck in this last stage, the blame and shame game, where we are walking around blaming other people for our failures and feeling ashamed at who we have become. Which all impacts and defines our identity. See, it all comes back to who you are. And if you're stuck in one of those cycles, other people's approval or lack thereof becomes the source of your identity. You are either a hero or a zero. See, we're designed by God, and this is fascinating that he designed us this way. We're designed by God to be told who we are from outside of ourselves. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but you don't tell yourself who you are. Other people tell you who you are. God designed us that way, and I'll tell you why. He did it so that he could tell us who we are. But what happens if you're stuck in one of these three cycles, what other people think about you and what other people say about you becomes the well from which your identity drinks. It becomes the mirror from which your identity looks in to find out who you are and how you're doing. Because I look in the mirror, but I've got you in the background going, what do you see? Because that's who I am. And that's how we live. So you get to the point where you ask, what's the answer? How do, we not, how do we break the cycle? How do we get out of the cycle? How do we not live with this approval addiction? Um, and I'll just say this. The answer is we need to start looking in a different mirror. See, so many of us, we, we look in and uh, in, in, we stand in front of a mirror for hours because uh, how we, we want to dress and we want to look good for the approval of others, and that's what we do. Um, but if we want a, a new and secure, confident identity, we need to use another mirror. And I'm going to need help from, uh, from somebody on the front row or nearby. Um, there's a Bible sitting right over there. That if, Would someone bring it to me? Um, I completely forgot to bring it up here. And rather than run around and, you know, all that stuff, thank you very much. Just the, just the Bible. Perfect. Thanks, Kim. Give it up for Kim. Kim, thank you very much. But the answer, to answer the question, how do you break the cycle, it's looking in a different mirror. And here's the different mirror that you need to start looking into, and that is this book. James refers to the Bible being a mirror, the Word of God being a mirror into who we truly are. And who we truly are is who God says we are. And so I want to say it, I want to, I want to, I want to say it this way. The one who designed you. The one who designed you is the only one who has the power to define you. See, so often we give the power to define ourselves away to other people. Organizations, things we read on the internet. But let me just tell you, when you look through this mirror, the only one who has the power to define you is the one who designed you. God's description of who you are is more important and more true than any other source. That's why there's so much power in God's word. And you might be going, I don't read God's word. I don't really get much out of it. Guess what you get out of it if you really stick with it? You start seeing who you are. That's the mirror that you look through. Ephesians 2.10. Paul is writing. He says, for we, you, 
are God's masterpiece. You're his work of art. Do you feel that way right now? Do you feel like a masterpiece that God designed and stepped back and said, perfect? You were designed, he's created you anew in Christ Jesus so you can do the good things that he planned for you long ago. God designed and created you as a magnificent work of art to put you on display to do things that he has had for you since before you were born. Do you see yourself that way? Are you experiencing, experiencing the life of a masterpiece right now? One of the most incredible things about accepting Jesus into your life is, I mean, for most, most incredible is that, you know, he says, I'm going to give you an eternity with me in heaven. I mean, you have, you have eternal life in heaven for accepting Jesus Christ. But the second most incredible thing that happens when you accept Jesus into your life is, 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 sec, is you find in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, invites Jesus into his life and is in Christ, has his identity coming from Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Whatever anybody's ever told you you are has passed away. The new has come. It's the change from sinner to saint, from broken and discarded to loved and accepted. And I loved how um, uh, this last week at the men's breakfast uh, we do, the first Wednesday of every month, Bill Malott was teaching. And he just, he gave you two different ways of seeing yourself. Are you a, are you a, are you a sinner saved by grace? Which a lot of us would go, yeah, that, that's what I am. Or are you a saint that sometimes sins, that sometimes chooses your own way? How do you see yourself? Are you stuck on the, I'm just a sinner, and thank God for the grace of God because I'm a horrible person, I'm a horrible human being. Which is true of all of us, by the way. But is that how you see yourself? Or do you see yourself as a saint that sometimes chooses to do your own thing and step away from the, the voice and the direction of God? who is always willing to forgive you. How do you see yourself? Because when you go to Scripture, we find that God loves us and approves of us already. Romans 5, 6, 8, and 9 says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. But God showed, us great, showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And I'll just tell you, by looking in God's mirror, we find that define, the, despite our imperfections, God adores us, and God can transform us into something new and beautiful and give us an identity that's right out of his word from looking in his mirror. But So I want to read you one definition of the gospel that is my favorite because it tells us what, who we are and what we are. And Tim Keller, he's a great author, theologian, he says this. He, his definition of the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared dream. Basically saying, look, you're worse than you even think you are. Which is like, okay, maybe. I might argue with you on that a little bit. But then he goes, but at the same time, at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. <laughs> I love that. It just comes down to our choice. How are you going to live 2018? How are you going to live 2018? Are you going to live in insecurity and fear, craving for the attention and approval of others? Or are you going to live in security and confidence and freedom to be who Jesus made you to be? Understanding who you are in Christ. And, and rather than me describe to you what that looks like, I want you to see it in a video and a story that we want to tell, a red chair story, which is just a redemption story. Um, but before we do, we're going to receive our offering. So ushers, if you guys can come on down. And, and let me just tell you, when you have a new identity, it really propels you to trust God. 
in a new way, even financially. And so for those of you um, that, that, that give to our church and our mission and what we do, thank you for that. For those of us, you got ushers can come on down. For those of you that are new, you're here for the first time or two, let the basket go by. We're not interested in your money. We just are so thankful and grateful that you are here. But this first story, we're going to end our service with two stories. The first story is the story of Judy Stoll. And I want you to hear her story. I want you to hear it through the lens of how tragic her life became as she was driven and addicted to the approval of other people. And then what happened when she met Jesus and he began to give her a new identity and change the course of her life as only he can do. So let's watch this together. When I was young, I, I loved my mom. She was, a, she was just a gorgeous, really talented person, just beautiful. She didn't have any self-worth. She wasn't a Christian and um, had already been left from one husband. This was her second marriage. And um, I think she knew my dad was having affairs and uh, she just did whatever it took. She was a June Cleaver during the day and a Marilyn Monroe at night. I watched that in her life, and I thought, well, if it worked for her, um, I guess the whole time I was, until I got married, I just thought that's what I would have to do. Eventually, I started getting interested in boys. I started dressing kind of seductively, and I didn't think I could get approval just for who I was. When I was 15, Johnny um, came into my life. He was uh, everything I ever wanted. I knew the minute I met him that I would never let him go. It wasn't even six months we were having um, sex. And a lot of times, if he would want to take me home early or anything, um, that's, how I, that's how I would keep him. One night I came home after being out late in Johnny's car. And my father was up, he had been drinking, and he called me a slut. I guess if I, I thought that if anybody could spot one, he could, because of the way his life was. And uh, I never got his approval, I guess. Or maybe I did. I don't know. I thought, maybe I thought women were supposed to be like that. And that that's all they were good for, because that's the way he treated my mom. And um, that's the picture I had of myself. Eventually, Johnny and I did get married. I remember Johnny um, always saying to me, um, all I want from you is I want you to look good smell good, and take care of the children. That's all I ever thought about was uh, how I looked. And if he would even come home for lunch and I didn't have my makeup on or my lipstick on or something, he would say, are you sick? Don't you feel good? I couldn't really be myself. I could never be myself. I always had to wear a, uh, a mask. I didn't feel like I, I could ever just be who I was. I found a Playboy magazine under the mattress um, I got really mad 
very angry. I felt very rejected, and I knew I had competition. One night, he, I had had a candlelight dinner all set for him. Um, the kids were tucked in bed, and he called and said he wouldn't be home because he had some other things that he had to do. By the time he got home, I was so angry. I went out, and I had an affair. Um, just a one-time affair. I couldn't believe that I had done that. I, was, I came home and I told him, um, hoping that he would show some kind of concern, but he didn't. He just he let me know that he really didn't care. About three months later, I found out I was pregnant, and then we were really scared. Uh, I knew that it wasn't my husband's baby. I went and had an abortion. And uh, one of the reasons I had the abortion was so that nobody would know what I did, that I had been unfaithful. I wanted to hide it. I didn't want my children ever to know that I wasn't the perfect mother, um, a perfect wife. I decided one night that I couldn't live with myself anymore for what I'd done, so I was standing in the bathroom and considering taking my life and the phone rang at three in the morning. It was my twin sister. What she told me was that an angel woke her up and said to call me because I was in trouble. So I remember hanging up the phone, going in my living room and praying to God, if you're real, please show me. So three weeks later, we went to a Billy Graham crusade it was like he knew my story. There were 75,000 people there. And the first scripture he quoted was about the adulterous woman. And I remember him saying that Isaiah 118 said that as even though your sins are red as scarlet, that he would wash you as white as wool, that he would forgive you. It was news I never knew. I had no idea that God was like that. I thought God was like my dad, that he was um, angry all the time, and I should be scared of him. I went to the altar and asked Jesus into my heart, because that's what I wanted. I wanted forgiveness. I wanted to, he said I could be made brand new. I remember going home, and I saw myself as a completely different person. I was just totally free to be who I wanted to be, and it wouldn't matter who got mad at me if I, <laughs> if I didn't you know, act the way they wanted me to act. All that mattered is that what God thought of me, even though I knew mercy and grace from God, I still didn't have that mercy and grace for Johnny. I put a lot of blame on him for my actions. He visited a church that I was attending, and um, again, the evangelist was preaching his story, and he got saved. I saw a change in Johnny that was incredible. After the Billy Graham crusade, I found out that I was pregnant. I just couldn't believe that God would allow me, would trust me to be a mom again after what I'd done, that he would really trust me. So for the next nine months, I was scared to death. So the day came when I went to the hospital and delivered the baby. 
and the nurses and the doctors kept looking at me saying, Judy, look at your baby. He's just a beautiful baby boy. And I didn't want to look because of that fear of punishment. And I finally looked at my child, John Dempsey Stoll. And that's when I really saw mercy and grace. I couldn't believe it, that God would give me this beautiful baby, he gave me beauty for ashes. I just um, thank God every day. storm around me see 
Stand and sing Cause when I fall to my knees You 
for 22 years now. I've heard thousands of stories, like Judy's, of what only God can do. He's the only one that could take somebody's story in life and turn it around like that. So I feel like the, the best way to finish our day and just kind of begin the, the last little bit of what we're going to do is to just read you a story, one last story. It's kind of like the bow on the day. It's a children's book of all things, but sometimes those are the most powerful, right? Because they're just so simple. And so I want to read you this story, and it's, um, it cuts right to the heart of the matter. And I can't think of a better way to end the message part of the day than, than this. It's by a guy named Max Licato. He's a great theologian, incredible writer. But this is what he writes. This is the story. The Wemmicks were small wooden people. All of the wooden people were carved by a woodworker named Eli. His workshop sat on a hill overlooking their village. Each Wemmick was different. Some had big noses, others had large eyes. Some were tall and others were short. Some wore hats, others wore coats. But all were made the same by the same carver, all lived, and all lived in the, in the village. And all day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each Wemmick had a box of Golden Star stickers and a box of Grey Dot stickers. Up and down the street, all over the city, people spent their days sticking stars or dots on one another. The pretty ones, those with smooth wood and fine paint, always got stars. But if the wood was rough or the paint chipped, the Wemmicks gave dots. The talented ones got stars too. Some could lift big sticks high above their heads and, or jump over tall boxes. Still others knew big words or could sing pretty songs. Everyone gave them stars. Some Wemmicks had stars all over them. Every time they got a star, it made them feel so good. It made them want to do something else to get another star. Others, though, could do little. They got dots. Punchinello was one of these. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell. And when he fell, the others would gather around and give him dots. Sometimes when he fell, his wood got scratched so the people would give him more dots. Then when he would try to explain why he fell, he would say something silly and the Wemmicks would give him more dots. After a while, he had so many dots that he didn't want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something dumb, such as forget his hat or step in the water, and then people would give him another dot. In fact, he had so many gray dots that some people would come up and give him one for no reason at all. He deserves lots of dots, the wooden people would agree with one another. He's not a good wooden person. After a while, Punchinello believed them. I'm not a good Wemmick, he would say. The few times he went outside, he hung around other Wemmicks who had lots of dots. He felt better around them. One day he met a Wemmick who was unlike any he'd ever met. She had no dots or stars. She was just wooden. Her name was Lucia. It wasn't that people didn't try to give her stickers. It's just that the stickers didn't stick. Some of the Wemmicks admired Lucia for having no dots, so they would run up and give her a star, but it would fall off. Others would look down on her for having no stars, so they would give her a dot, but it wouldn't stay either. That's the way I want to be, thought Punchinello. I don't want anyone's marks. So he asked the stickerless Wemmick how she did it. It's easy, Lucia replied. Every day I go see Eli. Eli? Yes, Eli, the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. Why? Why don't you find out for yourself? Go up the hill. He's there. 
And with that, the Wemmick, who had no stickers, turned and skipped away. But will he want to see me? Punchinello cried out. Lucia didn't hear. So Punchinello went home. He sat near a window and watched the wooden people as they scurried around, giving each other stars and dots. It's not right, he muttered to himself, and he decided to go see Eli. He walked up the narrow path to the top of the hill and stepped into the big shop. His wooden eyes widened at the size of everything. The stool was as tall as he was. He had to stretch on his tiptoes to see the top of the workbench. A hammer was as long as his arm. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm not staying here. And he turned to leave. Then he heard his name. Punchinello. The voice was deep and strong. Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come and let me have a look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. Do you know my name? The little Wemmick asked. Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up and set him on the bench. Hmm. The maker spoke thoughtfully as he looked at the gray dots. Looks like you've been given some bad marks. I didn't mean to, Eli. I tried really hard. Well, you don't have to defend yourself to me, child. I don't care what the other Wemmicks think. You don't? No, and you shouldn't either. Who are they to give stars or dots? They're Wemmicks just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think, and I think you are pretty special. Punchinello laughed. Me? Special? Why? I can't walk fast, I can't jump, my paint is peeling. Why do I matter to you? Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hands on those small wooden shoulders and spoke very slowly. Because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker. He didn't know what to say. Every day I've been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. I came because I met someone who had no marks, said Punchinello. I know, she told me about you. Why don't the stickers stay on her? The maker spoke softly, because she has decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about their stickers. I'm not sure I understand. Eli smiled. You will, but it will take time. You've got a lot of marks. For now, just come by to see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the Wemmick walked out the door, you are special because I made you and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. See, every day our creator says, come and spend time with me so I can remind you who you are. I can remind you how much you matter to me remind you how important you are because I made you and when we do the approval of others, the approval of this world, the approval of the system that we live in 
matters less and less. And so how we would like to end the service is with a song. There's something about singing that drives truth, the truth of God, deep into our hearts. And this song is called Good, Good Father because for so many of us, our identity has come from fathers who were imperfect, who spoke words into us that have damaged and hurt us. And God, that's why I think in, in Scripture so much, God describes himself as a good father, as our heavenly father, so that he could speak words of life and truth into us, into our identity. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And I want to pray over us before we sing this song. Lord, I thank you that your word is a mirror that we can look into every day and allow our identities to drink from the well of your truth. God, I pray that over the next few moments as we sing, sing this song together, that you would just drive the truth of the, day, of the day deep into our souls in such a way that we begin to believe what you say about us over what anyone else thinks. And God, in that, we might find the freedom that you promise when we follow you. So Jesus, minister to us over the next few minutes. Reveal yourself to us over the next few minutes and allow us to experience a moment where your Holy Spirit does the work that only your Holy Spirit can do and that is speak into our identities in such a way that we might begin to believe what you say.